Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to take an opportunity to kind of get ready for the new year, scripturally. So I'd like you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. One New Year's, an honest man prayed this, Dear Lord, so far this year I've done well. I haven't gossiped, I haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I'm so very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. That's New Year's Day, he's praying this. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Amen. I'm sure there are some areas in our lives where we feel we need a lot more help in. And to add to that, there are some trends, some troubling trends on the horizon that I want to make you aware of today so that we can get all the help God can give us. We're about to enter a new year. You will have... Starting January 1, 8,760 hours that add up to a year. Now, when you put it in terms of hours, it doesn't sound very long. In fact, some of you think that the year has just zoomed by this past year. It's gone so quickly. But not for all of you. Uh, Some of you have had enough trouble this year in your lives. You thought it couldn't go fast enough. It crawled by. You wish it would have gone by faster. This has not been a normal year. We've had a volatile election season. We've had a war in Afghanistan that has claimed more troop uh, exposure. Some of your family members have gone overseas. And we've had a downturn in the economy. It's been tough. There was a man who went to his doctor because he was losing his memory. And the doctor said, I can't fix your memory without hurting your eyesight. So you have to make a choice. You want to be able to see or do you want to be able to remember? The man thought about it and said, I think I'd rather have my eyesight than my memory because I'd rather see where I'm going than remember where I've been. Some of you might feel that way. It's been painful. You're glad to see 09 go. And you're hopeful for 010. Well, what I'd like you to do with me is picture the new year coming up like a city and the walls of a city. And there are four walls around the city. And just like Nehemiah saw the walls of his city, the city of Jerusalem, that needed some examination and some repair, let's look at our lives coming up as the four walls of the city. Now let's begin in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, before we move to our text. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Nehemiah is still working in the courtroom in Persia. And he hears this report. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Well, hearing that, he takes a trip. In chapter 2, verse 11, he arrives at Jerusalem. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. I arose in the night and a few men with me. 
I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I returned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know what I where I had gone or what I had done, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them, of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. An ancient city needed walls for protection. It needed walls for the life inside that city to thrive Enemies could penetrate if there were holes in the walls. And so that's why, like the city of Jerusalem, we want to view our lives, our new year, with four walls. You could label the first wall the wall of the family, your relationship to your family. You move to the second wall, you could call that the world or society or your culture, your relationship to the world. The third wall, let's call that truth. What is your relationship to the truth? And finally, the last wall we'll call God's kingdom or God's work on earth. And what is your involvement with that? Let's go back to the first wall and look at the hole that's there. By the way, when it says Nehemiah viewed the wall, the word viewed, uh, is a word that was sometimes used in the medical community to speak of a doctor probing, examining a wound to find the extent of the damage. So here's Nehemiah looking to see the extent of the damage with the holes that are in the walls. Hole number one that I see in our horizon is the hole of the fractured family. Now, back to Nehemiah for just a second. In Nehemiah's day, he had come back to Jerusalem because there was this thing called the captivity. For 70 years, the Jews had been displaced from their land and brought to Persia, Babylon, modern-day Iraq and Iran. Talk about something that displaced families, that was it. Fathers were killed, sons were killed who fought in wars, families were torn apart, and the family had been under massive attack, and now they're trying to rebuild their lives. Now, we quickly go from that to see how that fits in our culture. Our family has been under attack for a long, long time. That's not new news to you. The very foundational core of this country, the family has been under attack. It's interesting that this is now the first generation, 30, 40 years after the experimental generation. 
back in the 60s and early 70s when people said, hey man, free love, free sex, get into a relationship, get out of a relationship, and the divorce rate skyrocketed. That whole experimental cultural experiment, we're now seeing a generation later to see how it all worked out. Uh, we got an F on that one. We didn't do so well. The family is suffering greatly. This is one of the largest holes in our nation. Now, I'm not going to give you statistics of what's going on nationally. That's just too easy. What I'd like to do is simply look at where we live, the state of New Mexico alone, because this is just frightening enough. Unless we get lost in lots of statistics, let me just give you a snapshot of our state. In fact, these are so troubling, I had to triple check them to make sure these were accurate. In New Mexico alone, 40% of all children come from single-parent families. just going to let that soak in a minute. That's upwards, almost half, 40% of all children come from single-parent families. The teen birth rate, the teenage birth rate for girls ages 10 to 14 is higher than the national general birth rate. That's ages 10 to 14. They're having babies faster than the national birth rate. Also, 51.2% of all births in our state are born to unmarried women. That's over half. 51.2% of all births in our state are births to unmarried women. Go to any of the detention facilities in our town, in our state, and you can hear story after story of fractured families. Families that are not intact. So, like Nehemiah's time, if we look at this wall called the family, we have to say, the gates are burned with fire and the walls have been broken down. Let's talk about gates for just a moment. Ancient gates is where you'd get into a city. It's access point. You get into the city and you leave the city. And I'm finding people entering relationships and leaving relationships about as simply as ancient people went into cities and walked out of them. It's like, I'll try that for a while. It didn't work out. Bye. Next. Now, in the ancient city, it was the men who stood at the gate. The men protected the city. The men stood guard and stood their post. One of the troubling things that I am seeing from my vantage point is men who have left their post today. Men who have left their post today. Dr. Lauren Motion from the National Institute of Mental Health analyzed the United States census figures and found that the absence of a father is the strongest factor in juvenile delinquency. Number one factor, according to this guy who does mental health, number one factor for juvenile delinquency is absentee fathers. So you see, the cure for crime really isn't in the electric chair. It goes all the way back to the high chair. And if we look at the wall called the family, we have to say there are some gaping holes in this. I love the fact that in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, there's a list of people who rebuild the walls. They're given. And it's a list of people from one town, another town, but there's also a list of families. The son of this person, the father of this person. Families working together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
And in chapter 4, verse 13, Nehemiah writes, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set people according to their families, or as other translations say, along with their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. The problem was a family problem. The solution was a family solution. So, let's get really practical for a second. Because this is a hole in the wall. What can we do? What can we do? Well, we can do two things. One is something we can do at home with all of our own personal families. And the other is something we could do in the community. First of all, at home, it's as simple as making a choice before God and your family that I'm going to make this a priority this coming year. Honey, the family is going to be a priority for me. It's not going to be work or it's not going to be hobbies. It's going to be my family. And I'm going to learn to say I'm sorry more often. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Let's communicate. Let's resolve this. Let's learn to work this through. We can do that on a personal level. Because dads, it's much easier to build a boy than repair a man. You've got a little bit of time with that person and those little people in your home. Build them so that they don't have to be repaired later on. But let's talk about the repairing. In our community, there are lots of kids that are in detention that need mentors. And maybe you have a little bit of time and you'd want to work with a group called LifeQuest. That's one of them. One of our pastors here on staff heads that up for the city and the state. A wonderful program. It could be that you're an empty nester. Kids have grown up and you have that time. And if you don't want to go to the detention centers, I'll tell you what, we could use your help around here in our children's ministry, in our parenting classes. I imagine you have so much wisdom that you have learned over the years of raising your children. We'd love to tap into that. By the way, did you know that toy makers watch the divorce rate? You know, it's a kind of a sick truth, but they know that when the divorce rate goes up, toy sales go up and they're perched, ready to capitalize on that. You know why toy sales go up? Because they're at the point of divorce is such competition for a child's affection that a parent usually will throw toys at the child. Here, 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 I love you, here. I know, sort of unfair, Christmas has just happened. I'm sure you gave toys, I'm not against that. But I'll tell you what a child wants. You. You. Your involvement so we can help close the gap in that wall. Now let's, let's move from that wall to a, another wall, another part of our upcoming year. That is our relationship to the world, to our culture. And the hole that I'm talking about here is the hole of cultural conformity, where Christians who are to be separated are becoming like the world. And there's a reason for that. They're giving out messages Every second of every day that we should be like them if we want to be happy people. Let's go back to Nehemiah. I'd like you to notice something. In chapter 2, verse 19, we're introduced to um, some big mouths. The enemies of those who are building the walls. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? 
will you rebel against the king? Now, if you know anything about Nehemiah, you know that this little group of antagonists pop up throughout the whole book. They just don't go away. And part of their plan is to give verbal communication to the people building the walls of Jerusalem so that the people building the walls of Jerusalem would get discouraged. So this is like a propaganda machine, a PR machine to get people discouraged. Verse 1 of chapter 4 Notice this, it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews and spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Verse 7, it so happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, The Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Look what happened in verse 10. Then Judah said, now Judah is the nation of Judah, embodied in a single voice here. All the people living in Jerusalem, as if in one chorus said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. See what's happening? The messages, the PR machine, the propaganda machine was so heavy, so incessant that the people who are building the walls are getting discouraged. They want to give up. This is too big of a job. We can never pull it off. I submit to you that is what is happening with us. We are being barraged. Radio, television, the public school system, books, movies, songs, the message over and over again. What are these feeble, narrow-minded Christians doing? And that is being amped up. In the last year, couple of years, it's being amped up by popular books that have been written. For example, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. The End of Faith by Sam Harris. God is Not Great by Hitchens. And you know what the result of all of that propaganda is? The hole gets bigger, 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 bigger. And you know where the fallout comes? The real fallout comes? Your children. Your children. According to Barna Research Group, one out of every three teenagers will walk away from the church. One out of every three. So what happens typically is they go to church, they go to church, they learn the Sunday school stories, the David, the Goliath, all that stuff. They get into high school, they go to the high school group, they're cool, they do the cool music, they get into college, no support, boom, they drop right off. One out of three teenagers will walk away from the church. A study was conducted of people between the ages of 16 and 29. And it showed that this new generation is much more skeptical of and resistant to Christianity than people of the same age just a decade ago. And so they were asked this question. Ready for the question? When did you first start doubting? When was it that you first started doubting your faith? 42% said when I was in middle school. And a large percentage in high school, but a huge percentage in middle school, some even in elementary. 
And what it was is they heard things and they were given questions that they couldn't answer. And it seems that nobody around them was answering those questions. So that little seed grew and stayed unanswered and grew and grew and they walked away. I submit to you that we are not giving kids reasons to believe. We're simply imposing Christianity upon them. And that will never work. We haven't taught them how to defend the faith. And perhaps that's because we ourselves don't know how to defend the faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, very famous verse, says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. But it seems about the best we've been able to come up with is, is this line. Don't worry about all that stuff, Johnny. Don't worry about all that stuff, Susie. Just trust in Jesus. We haven't told them why they should. We haven't given them any kind of reason, apologetic reason, to counteract what they're hearing elsewhere. I'm going to make an appeal to you this morning for the coming year. I'm going to ask you to think, to read, to read, and think, and reason, and be prepared to think through the arguments and articulate why you believe what you believe. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Engage the mind. Ours is an objective faith. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, quote, people aren't thinking anymore. Brain cells are seriously under-exercised. Contemplation has become an old-fashioned word with little place in our fast-paced, high-tech world. For thinking, we've substituted entertainment. The substitution has been so effective that many of us believe that entertainment actually makes us think. We think of ourselves as being the best-informed generation in history because of television. But television is not informing us, it is entertaining us, and there's a huge difference. I was probably no more than three or four months old in my faith when I went to college. Boy, was I in for a shock. I was so hyped on Jesus, and I just started to read the Bible, I was so excited. And then I had professor after professor whose sole job it was to dismantle my belief system. That's what it felt like. And they were pummeling me with information and questions. And it was a medical profession. So I felt totally ill-equipped. And I came home one day thinking, I'm not going to believe in this if it's not intellectually defensible. I'm not going to believe in it because I go to church once a week and it makes me feel really good. That's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And then I discovered a book. It was written by an author that years later became a very close friend of mine whose name was Josh McDowell. And he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I started reading this book and discovered how the Christian faith is not only objectively seen, but can be demonstrated, and it's intellectually the smartest choice, and it started counteracting all of these professorial arguments that I heard. And I decided I'm not only going to read this book, I'm going to memorize chunks of it. And I go back to work. And when people started bringing stuff up, I'd start asking them questions. And I watched them wince and get really nervous and not know how to answer it and get really angry. So I thought, huh, I'm onto something here. 
I started really enjoying this process. So I wanted to engage everyone that I could. And eventually I found that I could win some of those antagonists to the Christian faith. Now, a few months ago, I was teaching our college group downtown. And I kind of told them this story. And afterwards, I started thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great if these college students could be equipped with worldview training to articulate boldly and clearly not only what they believe, but why they believe and why others should believe it with the background of philosophy and science, etc. And so starting in January, at the end of the month, we're going to have what's called the Aletheia Project. And it's going to teach worldview, philosophy, um, ethics, on and on and on, sociology from a Christian perspective, giving reasons for faith, and we're going to do it on UNM campus along with some of the professors who are there, who are believers, wonderful believers. Can't wait. That's a fight I'd love to get involved in. Let's move now from that wall to a third wall. And this is now our relationship to the truth. And here's the gaping hole in this wall called the, the truth. It is the hole of uncertain spirituality. I almost wanted to call it unspiritual spirituality. Did you know that spirituality is on the rise in our country? And at the same time, truth is on the decline. Any idea of absolute truth is way down, but spirituality, generally speaking, is on the rise. I call it Oprah spirituality, if you know what I mean. If you've ever seen her show, you know what I mean. This generic, ambiguous, spiritual interest. An uncertain spirituality. Very similar to Nehemiah's time. I don't have time to turn to chapter 13 of Nehemiah, but let me describe what's happening. Nehemiah goes back to the city of Jerusalem after a period of time. He discovers that the people are spiritual. They're at the temple. They're worshiping. But truth has gone down. They're not really keeping the Sabbath like they used to keep the Sabbath. In fact, it got so bad that Tobiah, the Ammonite, one of the enemies, is setting up camp and living in one of the temple rooms. It got really bad. So he goes there to set it right. There is an increased interest in our country in spirituality, but a decreased interest in truth, especially absolute truth. And that's because there has been a cultural shift I hope you know about this. If you don't, if you've never heard about this, it may be too late. It's called postmodernism. Postmodernism. It is the philosophy that is generally accepted that everything is ambiguous. Nothing is known for certain. We can dialogue about it, but nobody can be absolute about anything. Nothing is certain. It's impossible to have any settled knowledge of the truth. Therefore, To be in the midst of a postmodern culture and hold a strong conviction about anything at all is frowned upon and seen as naive or not tolerated. It's interesting. They'll say, you need to be more tolerant and we won't tolerate you unless you are. (laughs) Everything is subjective. Nothing is objective. Kathy Lynn Grossman wrote an article in USA Today. The article was, More Americans Dropping Dogma for Spirituality, and she writes, and I quote, Religion today in the USA is a salad bar where people heap on upbeat beliefs that they like 
and often leave the veggies like strict doctrine behind. She quoted the Pew Research Group in this article saying 70% of all major Christian and non-Christian religious groups say that many religions can lead to eternal life. This is 70% of Christians, so-called, that uh, many religions can lead to eternal life. And 68% say that there are more than one true way to interpret the teachings of my religion. Now, here's the, the problem that I have. The culture is one thing. I'm not called to make every unbeliever act like believers. I'm called to evangelize and make unbelievers turn into true believers. But the hole in the wall that is really gaping has shown up in something called the emerging church. The emerging church. The emerging church is a new church movement in our country that has wholly embraced postmodern thinking. And These emerging church leaders will say the Bible is a human product. The message of the Bible is ambiguous. Therefore, truth is hazy. Truth is unknowable. And they hate, they hate any certainty about what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is error. They hate that. They hate it. So they might concede and say God has spoken, but at best he's mumbled in their view. He hasn't spoken clearly. And thus the Bible is unknowable. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, because Paul predicted it would happen. Second Timothy chapter 4, the time will come when they will not put up with sound doctrine. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. How do we close that gap? Well, there's two ways. I have a responsibility as a preacher, and here's what my responsibility is, to preach the word, to preach the truth. Uh, to preach the whole word and nothing but the word, whether it is enjoyed or not. That is what is laid upon me. Preach the word. Then there's your part, and I'll include myself in that, our part as believers, because I'm also a hearer as well as a teacher, and that is to let the word confront us. Let the word confront us. In Nehemiah 13, when all this was happening... Nehemiah came in and it kicked the enemy out of the temple, reinstituted the Sabbath, and put truth back on track in the midst of a surging, ambiguous spirituality. So let the truth confront you this year, as well as comfort you. Sometimes you're going to hear things and the truth will hurt before it heals. Sometimes it will be pure joy and pure comfort and pure encouragement, but not all the time. Preach the word and let the word confront you. Let's move to the fourth and final wall because we're running out of time. We've circled the city and there's one left as I see it. And that is our relationship to God's kingdom. And I'm simply mirroring what I see in the book of Nehemiah. The relationship of God's people to the work of God on the earth. Now, in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, there was a downturn in the economy. There was a famine in the land. Taxes were beginning to be raised. It got really bad. Verse 1, there was a great outcry of the people from their wives against their Jewish brethren For there were those who said, we, our sons, our daughters, and many 
are many, and therefore let us get grain and that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. And they list all of these things that brought this softening economy. Well, that's chapter 5. By the time we get to chapter 13, Nehemiah discovers that the people have just stopped supporting the work for the temple building. The very reason they came to the city of Jerusalem. They stopped. They started turning inward because it's a soft economy. We're not going to support this temple any longer. It's all about survival mode now. Now, all of this is very familiar to us because we are in an age the last couple of years where the economy has been really, really tough. I understand that. It's taken its toll. And it's seen. It's seen across the board. Charitable giving in our country has gone down 30% in all of that. That's understandable. But it is not acceptable. Because part of following Christ is my willingness to trust Him with my finances. I'll give you a little personal story. I remember the first time in my life when the Lord laid this on my heart. I was single, and the Lord was speaking to my heart about tithing, about giving 10% of my income, and I was very resistant to it. I was sitting in church, I'm listening to a message, and I knew that God was speaking to me. My hands started getting cold sweats, and I just thought of what I could do with that money. I'm going to waste it on God's work. This is my carnal, honest self-talking. And I thought of all the things I could use it for. And the Lord spoke to me to make that a practice of mine. And then I discovered a truth. The truth is, 10% doesn't belong to God and 90% to me. It all belongs to God. He's just really gracious to let me play around with 90%. That's very gracious of Him. So, when I first married Lenya, we made a decision right off the bat in our marriage that 10% of our income, before taxes, 10% is going to go to our local church, wherever we fellowship. And then beyond that, there's going to be missionaries that we will support or special works that we want to engage in to get the Lord's work done. And we made sure that we both agreed on that, and we made that our practice ever since. And by the way, the only time God ever says, test him in something, it's in the giving of tithes and offerings. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Test me in this, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough for you to receive. I don't know how that works. I just know that it works. Now, I want to say something else very emphatically to you. You counteract the national trend. This is a very generous... This is the best church I've ever seen in my life uh, for a number of reasons. But in in the midst of even a waning economy, you have been faithful to the Lord. uh, And and you're to be commended. And you should also know that those who are stewards of that, uh, the staff and especially the accounting staff, and we have a finance committee and a board of directors, they're very careful to maintain a, a good, tight, responsible balance over it. But this waning generosity is something that, as I said, is affecting Christians around the world. I know we're in a downturned economy, but listen to this. According to the best research, 
Even with our waning economy, American Christians are still the single most affluent group of Christians that have ever lived in church history. We still are in really good shape. If you look at Christians for the last 2,000 years, even us with our downturn economy, we're doing really good. We're affluent. But, did you know that during the Great Depression, the worst economic time of our country, the average per capita church giving was 3.3%. It went down from 10% in the Great Depression to 3.3%. You know what it is today? Before our economic downturn, 1.5% to 2.5%. Even before the economic downturn, the average Christian in America was giving less than at the level of the Great Depression. So, the challenge is for all of us to trust God and follow God even when it comes to our finances. All of the walls must be kept in balance. And my prayer for you this week, and will remain so for you this year, is that God will strengthen your family. God will strengthen your relationship to the unbelieving world that's sending those messages to you. That God will strengthen your resolve to believe in and hold absolute truth, as well as being generous to support God's work around the world, so that the gospel can be preached across the street, across the city, And across the seas. I'm praying that you won't have to say, Lord, I've done so good so far this year, but I'm going to wake up in just a minute and get out of bed. But that all of your year, you'll see God bless you and prosper and that you will thrive in all of these areas. And so, Father, we close today thanking you for your word, for these challenges, for these opportunities that we have, Opportunities in our family, opportunities with our neighbors, opportunities to represent truth in a world that does not believe that absolute truth exists, and to support your work that Christ may be glorified. That's why we live in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.